0: Today on The Black Goat, we talk about scientific societies, why we have them, what they do, and why you should care. And we read a letter about having a podcast as a grad student. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and as always, I'm here with Alexa Tullett in Alabama. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. And Samin Vizier in the City of Light, Paris. How are you doing, Samin?
1: I'm good. How are you?
2: I'm
0: (laughs) (laughs) not as good as you are, because I'm not in Paris.
2: (laughs) You're still on sabbatical.
0: Uh, That's true. I I should not be complaining about locations. Um... No, that's true. I'm I'm sitting in my office in a sunny day in Los Angeles, so it's not terrible. Um, it's I'm funny because you're you in my French side. You're in Paris, and I'm sure in some like glamorous location. But the background that I see is just the generic wall of a hotel, yeah. with some like crappy mass produced art. Like would be anywhere. Oh,
2: interesting. This is an Airbnb. This is like carefully chosen art. Oh well, <laughs> 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 carefully chosen. Craft. At least
0: at, at least the. Uh, what's the the guy thomas kincaid the painter of light at least like in the city of light they don't have the painter of light because that was mm-hmm. do you guys know who thomas kincaid is
1: i've heard the name
0: he he's this he's kind of like a he, he's this artist and he's got like stores and malls and that kind of thing and and he's kind of like uh um he's he's sort of like a I, people like to punch down or up or I, I don't know if it's punching down or up at him um because he's made millions of dollars but he's considered not a very good artist by mm. people that actually care about art. I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about art, but um, he's sort of like the Celine Dion of art. And so, oh. uh, I'm
1: anyway. confused by this analogy. He's you mean like, the he's best con- at it? <laughs> 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 like
0: super popular, but snobs like to look down on him, Yeah, which uh, I think I was doing, even though I don't know enough about art to be a, a legit snob. So I'm just like a fake piling on train bandwagon jumping snob mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how we got to this <laughs> uh, um so we wanted to so
1: it's
2: weird oh. being well so I have I have a segue <laughs> I was gonna okay say, it's all right good I was a... I was gonna
0: do a really awkward segue uh, uh, I mean yeah. do a good segue so my
2: segue is that one of the interesting things about being in Europe is that we're I'm nine hours ahead of where I usually am California so like I'll wake up at 7 a.m. and like there's interesting things stuff to tweet about, but then I have to wait nine hours before like people on the West Coast, you know, <laughs> read it and stuff like that. So today I tweeted. I had the closest thing I've ever had to a viral tweet because I read the, the Medium article about Lombardo before most Americans did, um, huh. and yeah, tweeted about that and spent a lot of the day <laughs> watching the, the responses and stuff. It was really interesting. I didn't see anybody quite defend Zimbardo the way I saw with, like, Weinstein and Sternberg, where there were people who were like, oh, come on, like, this could happen to anybody. I didn't quite see that. I saw something close to that, though, which is interesting.
0: So we should set this up. Yeah. So there's there's an article that came out in Medium, I guess, over the weekend. And we're recording this on Monday. The podcast comes out on Wednesday. So who knows what people will be saying or if the, the Internet will have moved on. But basically... There was this article about the Stanford Prison Experiment and Phil Zimbardo's promotion of it. We'll link it in the show notes. And raising a lot of, I think, documentary evidence about contrasting things that Phil Zimbardo has said about the experiment over the years to what actually happened and presenting a very different view of the experiment and kind of, you know, really showing that Zimbardo said some things that are just seemingly not not true, just plain not true, as well as trying to advance a certain narrative around it that some of the other people who are involved ha- have been disputing for a long time. Did mm-hmm. I summarize that? And there's recordings,
2: oh. there's even recordings of conversations he had during the experiment that refute characterizations he made of it afterwards. Right. Like, Which I think it, is, it was the question of whether participants were allowed to leave, and he kept telling Reporters and stuff that of course they were to, let, let to leave and so on and it turns out there's a recording where during the experiment He tells his staff that some participants asked to leave and he told them no
0: Yeah, and and apparently like told the author of this medium article that well no 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 there was like a specific phrase that they were supposed to say yeah, that they were told in the consent, consent form, form. Mm-hmm. and then the, the guy went and looked at the consent form and was like it's not mm-hmm. in there and it was sort of weird it was described as a safe word which I found sort of funny I uh, this is kind of a aside I find it funny how like the concept of a safe word is you know like I mean that comes from like S&M and you know anyway it's mm-hmm. like this, this thing like really like you, you had a safe word like you know what were you doing like you know flogging your anyway whatever but um
2: there were yeah. so many crazy parts that jumped out at me, yeah. but I think the number one thing that jumped out at me was his argument that the longevity of the like public um, interest in the experiment is like proof that it's important or he's right or something like that. And I feel like implicitly that argument is behind a lot of defenses of the status quo, Mm -hmm. that the longevity itself is evidence. And that's actually not a crazy argument, right? Like you could argue that like, well, peer review must not be that bad because look how long it's been around Mm -hmm. or things like that. And I think people feel that way about, you know, questionable research practices or effects that, you know, have been around for decades that are still taught in textbooks and so on, Mm -hmm. which is pretty much what he's saying. Um, But yeah, I think it's in this case, like, He's partly responsible for the longevity because he did so much marketing of it and you know, had him like contributed to a movie that was made and so on. So it's a little circular to say that, but. Yeah, and it's also,
1: I think that that argument is a little bit um, antithetical to science, right? Like the sort of like the point of doing a scientific study is that you have the potential to, well, I guess reinforce or overturn like common wisdom. And I think probably the things that are most likely to have um, a lot of longevity are things that jive very well with common wisdom. Um, so, so yeah, like the idea that just because something really resonates with people suggests that it's like, should have longevity as a scientific finding, I think is, yeah, at odds with the point of doing a scientific study. Um, reading the article reminded me of like something that I was thinking about recently because I was like reading through um, an intro psych textbook because I teach intro psych um, and it was talking about um, the example of the salmon study, uh, the salmon fMRI study. Uh, so basically like to to demonstrate that it's possible to have false positive findings in fMRI in like a sort of sensational way. Um, the researchers put uh, dead salmon into a, um, a magnet and then recorded like some brain activity. Um, and I think, you know, I think that study is sort of like almost like psychological performance art. And it made me wonder, like what it would mean to be um somebody who is like explicitly a psychological performance artist. And in some ways, I feel like the Stanford Prison experiment is really more performance art than scientific study, right. Like I think I think he was trying to do a demonst- like stage a demonstration. Um, rather than, than run a study. that he wanted
2: all the credit of running
1: a study. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so I
0: think that's that's to me the because this this is you know I think people are gonna try to I mean it'll it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is but I think some a common thing when these thing, kind of things happen is people try to write it off and say oh this is the exception, but I think there is a way in which that idea of like one of the functions of a psychological experiment, and this is I think particularly true in social psychology, um, although it, I think it comes up in other places as well, is to like get an idea out there into circulation, right? Yeah, And, right. and the, you know, there's, we talked pre- in a previous episode about Daryl Bem talking about this, about how like rigor is for other people. I wanted to sort of put these ideas out there. Yeah. And the, yeah, the problem with that, and this is I think what you're alluding to, Samin, is you're trying to, when you call it a study, you're trying to have it both ways. Yeah, So if, right. if Phil Zimbardo had just written an essay about, yeah. like, this is how I think people work, um, if he had done this, you know, without running the Stanford Prison Experiment, if he'd just written all the ideas he had about it for a philosophy journal or for, a, you know, a, a for the New Yorker or for whatever... Um, you know he could have put those ideas out there about situationism and about you know all, all these other things and and people could have responded to that but when you say right. I did an experiment and you hold it up and mm-hmm. and you're calling it an experiment you're not saying this is a demonstration you're not saying this right. is art or this is you know reality tv or whatever else um you're 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 trying to gain that credibility for your ideas and I, I think that's really problematic and it's problematic also in how we teach this stuff because then you know we go and we teach it and this was julia galef was actually the first tweet i saw about this article she made this point that you know there's someone quoted in the article who teaches the stanford prison experiment who's saying well yeah maybe the experiment itself isn't that valid but you know the the ideas are sound and it's like well one the ideas are sound and this is empirical science you should be able to find an experiment that actually presents those sound ideas but two, what message does this send to students that you're you're running this you know you're presenting this experiment with a tiny sample size with all these biases now it comes out that even what we think actually did happen didn't necessarily because there there may have been some misrepresentation over the years and it's like what you know what's the message that sends to students that you're saying this is a valuable part of the psychology
2: canon? And what's makes it I don't know I think the part that makes me really upset and this comes on the heels of you know Brian Wentzink and Bob Sternberg and stuff like that is these people get so much power right they become so influential in the field mm-hmm. they become held up as these like exemplars for people to strive to be like them when there mm-hmm. were signs staring us in the face like. It, and in in all three of those cases, the people who found the like misconduct, if it can be called that, and I think it can, but maybe it's clearer in some of those cases than others. But the people who found them were not you know journal editors or even like very active people who've been around in the field for a while. like this this medium article about um, Zimbardo, the guy's name is Ben, ben Bloom. I don't know what I think I don't know if he's a writer full time, but like he, he happened to look into Zimbardo because he was a fan because of the connection to his cousin. Um, and it just makes me so frustrated that we the those of us who had a responsibility for vetting, right? But not necessarily just the reporting of that article and including it in a textbook, although we definitely had a responsibility for that, but like making him president of APA or giving these people gatekeeper roles or leadership roles in our fields. Like and I think for me, even though I do believe in bad apples, <laughs> I'm a personality psychologist, yeah. if I, I think that if there are people getting away with such extreme stuff right under our noses for years and years and years in ways that were so easy to discover if we bothered to look, that makes me think there are lots of other people that we put on pedestals and that we give leadership roles to who are also not role models. And they're, you know, I think few are gonna be as extreme as this, but it just makes me really frustrated the lack of calibration of how we treat people and how we like honor them and so on compared to what they've done for the field.
0: Well, and I I think the, another part of the frustration for me is, is that it's kind of like, this is what it takes is documentary evidence recordings Mm -hmm. that show that what he has said in public and congressional testimony and in interviews and all this other stuff what he said actually objectively there's a recording that contradicts it and it's like everything he's said about the stanford prison experiment could be 100 percent true and it would still be a bad study <laughs> and right. you know I, I like i was tweeting about it this morning and and you know um i made some comment about like situationism and someone in the replies said something about like well there's other studies and they mentioned darley and batson the yeah. the good samaritan study um and they said like i hope that one replicates and i you know I, I you know my response to that was like darley and batson was 40 subjects after trimming it down from a large number and a bunch of exclusions um, the main conclusions rest in large part on some nulls, including a null of a person by situation interaction, as well as a null of one of the main manipulations. It's flexibly analyzed. It's like, we shouldn't be, and, and Darlene and Batson doesn't have the conceptual problems, in my opinion, that the Zimbardo study also had, but like it's like, we, we shouldn't be putting that much on this study, even taking everything, and I have no reason to believe that, like, as in terms of like objective history that they i'd have no reason not to believe that they did what they say they did but it's like it's just it's not that strong of a study the zimbardo study it's like we should have been i mean i've never taught it in my intro to psych class because i've just always thought it was not what it's billed as mm-hmm. um it's it's got so many problems with the interpretation problems with how it was run et cetera, etc cetera, etc etc cetera. um but it's like that that kind of we can't like, that kind of conceptual analysis has not prevailed. Like, Zimbardo is this huge figure. This study is talked about in every textbook or almost every textbook, etc. You can't take it down with just, like, a scientific rebuttal. You have to show mm-hmm. that, like – and and who knows after this? I mean, hopefully it, it will start coming out of textbooks. But, you know, it's like, do you actually have to go to, you know, the, the author – Misrepresented objectively what happened in order to take something once it's like gotten this vaunted, or you know, that's that's kind of dispiriting to me.
1: So Samin, you mentioned like a uh, miscalibration about wh- how these people end up so like valued and famous. I'm, I maybe I know the answer. I'm not sure, but like, what do you think? people are misvaluing is it is it the f- the findings I or like the ideas or is it is something the fame about the people? as a
2: signal right like you get a little bit of fame and then people think well if you got that fame you must have earned it so we should give okay. you an award too and this is actually going to connect to what our main topic about society is like mm-hmm. what responsibility does a society have before they make someone a keynote speaker or give them an award or put them on the ballot for president or things like that like if people had like even stopped to think about it for 20 minutes would they have put Zimbardo on such a pedestal or to be honest I have feelings that I don't know if I should air but like I think that if I had been on a search committee for an editor of perspectives that I would have I wouldn't have known about the self-plagiarism things like that but I think there were other aspects of Sternberg's ethos that were clear from his past work and behaviors that while not misconduct by any means and I don't mean to say that they're like objectively wrong or anything but some of the things that ended up frustrating people about the change in direction that perspectives took from Bobby Spellman to Sternberg were predictable, and maybe that was a conscious choice on the part of the search committee, but if not, then it seems strange to like be like, oh, well, how could we have known that you know this would happen, or whatever? So, but I feel like in general, we just don't spend enough time thinking that just because somebody is famous, that maybe we shouldn't take that as a cue that they deserve some major leadership role or recognition or that kind of thing. And I feel like we don't do that enough. We take status as a really valid signal that someone deserves more status.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think we have these like um, these ideas that reinforce that, that if you have somebody who's high status, then you're going like, to draw, I don't know, a lot of submissions or a yeah. large crowd to a but, talk or whatever. Um, yeah. Which oh, I've definitely
2: that's... heard the attitude expressed of, like, well, we can't say no to that person. And that mm-hmm. attitude to me is so toxic. That's how, you know, people who have sexual harassment rep- like past track records or m- other kinds of bad behavior track records or just mm-hmm. bad research or things like that. Uh, often when people ask, well, how could you invite them to this or how could you, whatever so, the answer is, always well, we couldn't say no to them.
1: Do you think that, like, the initial thing that gets people the initial bit of fame that sort of like sets them on this path is also like systematically not things that should bring people fame or is it just like bad luck that sometimes people become famous and they...
2: I think that there's probably a causal effect of having fame on being a corrupt person. I do believe that the situation is pretty powerful there. But I also (laughs) think it sounds like Zimbardo's had a pretty consistent pattern over his... Over many decades of his life, maybe mm-hmm. he wasn't that way when he was really young. I don't know, but mm-hmm. in the cross modalities and things like that. So I think, ironically, and Sanjay, you had yeah. some good tweets about this that like that you know people are going to attribute this to-, to Zimbardo's personality, which I think might actually be accurate. I don't know. It's, um, it's an
0: interaction. Everything's an interaction. And, and yeah, of, course, of we, course, we'll save this for <laughs> another episode. But I, I have a I have a whole rant in me about situationism and quote, unquote, the power of the situation, um, which this sort of plays into, but um, no, it's like he, he, you know, and and the the medium article does a good job documenting this, like, you know, he was issuing press releases during the study, he first wrote it up for a popular magazine, not a scientific journal. Um, you know, this was not like, oh, this fame fell upon him, and then suddenly, like the you know the movie, you know, storybook version of like the person gets the surprise inheritance, and then it makes them a different person or whatever. It's yeah. like this was not that. Mm-hmm. Um, this was somebody, uh, um, but this was also somebody who was operating in a system where that was, you know, where that had the effects that it had, and so so it's not mm-hmm. either or but anyway yeah Yeah, of
2: course yeah and i do want to qualify like i do think that power corrupts and so i think there is a strong effect of the situation but i actually get really really frustrated when people use that excuse in the context of editing because i've been in that role and i feel like it's pretty easy for it to have the opposite influence too like to me being in the role of like being able to reject people's papers or or accept them that could affect their tenure affect things like you feel this like very serious weight of responsibility and so some people that might go to their heads but it it could just as possible you could tell a really good story about how that's a humbling experience and how that makes you very very careful not to abuse that power and so on so i don't think it necessarily has to go that way so i do think there are individual differences in how people react to having power and so
0: well we we might come back to some more related issues in our main topic but should we move on to our letter
1: uh sure yeah so our letter begins hey all before starting my current clinical psychology doctoral program i was out of school for a few years during that time i created a podcast that was a weekly talk show on culture politics and current events for a general context of my political leanings i consider myself a centrist about a year into the show i returned to school for my doctorate towards the end of the school year I was asked to interview at an atypical site for clinical work for second years. The interview went well for the first half, but suddenly shifted in the second half. The site director was very against me having such a show as she thought that expressing my views on world events would negatively affect her practice and my clients. The next week, the site director emailed me to tell me that she would not be taking me. When I called to ask why, she said that she felt I wasn't properly considering how my actions were negatively affecting clients. Shortly after, I debriefed with my school's clinical director, Ultimately, I chose to shut my show down because I'm worried that sites won't take me uh, for practica and internship hours. I'm saddened by all this because I think it's important for mental health professionals and students to get more involved in current events, lending a voice to what is happening in the world. Obviously, I understand that clients may get turned off by that and start working with me, but I've had clients disappear for less, as most clinicians have. So, short story long, how do you all feel about students being involved in things like news podcasts? Uh, anonymous
0: i'm huh. I'm anti podcasting nobody yeah, I think
1: I don't think anybody should nobody be else
0: should be podcasting, but no, no. <laughs> I mean it's interesting you you know just not to overplay I mean we podcast about psychology and academia and science and all that, but this this person's describing podcasting. it sounds like that's not necessarily it's a little unclear to me, but it sounds like it's not just about sort of like clinical psychology, although there's maybe some connections that they make or something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that like, being in academia, we take academic freedom and protected speech so much for granted. And sometimes I have to remind myself that like, it's, it's part of my employment contract and my job that I'm not going to face certain repercussions in the context, in the narrow context of like being an employee of the university of Oregon, right. That, that I can say certain things and, and some people in a lot of jobs don't have that freedom. Like you, you know, you can't like there, you know, this just happened last week where like a, uh an executive at CrossFit was tweeting sort of anti LGBT stuff on Uh, um, on Twitter and and you know was like talking about something that had happened at a CrossFit gym and CrossFit fired him Uh, or no they didn't fire they they suspended him without pay or whatever Um, and that's like a, a you know like in in most other employment sectors if I was like an officer at a business and I was out in public talking about the the thing that the business does, and I had the business's name on my profile and whatever else, mm-hmm. they might hold me accountable for that. And and I'm not actually, I, I think that that's, I think that the private sector does that way more than it should. But it is kind of interesting that that's, uh, like, I I feel so used to feeling this sense of relative, and certainly there's plenty of situations where academics have faced blowback about things, but relative to a lot of other people, I feel like, it's part of the norms of our profession that like we're supposed to be speaking out and engaged with society. And, and that's kind of part of what academia exists for.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little hard to evaluate this situation specifically without having like, you know, like listened to this podcast or whatever. But I think the broader questions about um how, Vocal to be on social media platforms, and maybe this question the answer to this question is different depending on whether you're a graduate student versus junior faculty versus senior faculty and maybe the answer is also different depending on whether you're an experimental or a clinical program um, but yeah I think I think it is becoming more and more the case, and we've talked about this a little bit before that you know there are really like interesting and important academic roles that you can play on social media platforms like Simeon was like you know if you want to be a grad student in my lab you have to have a twitter account um,
0: <laughs> is that true wait did i miss that No, no. i mean it's like a people are gonna
2: phrase. think that's true i didn't say that did you say said something like,
1: like i can't really like it would be hard for me to imagine somebody who would be like compatible working with me you don't have me. to have an
2: account you should i think it would be weird to not read some stuff on
1: twitter but
2: <laughs> i don't care at all about people tweeting which is kind of what this letter is about more.
1: okay yeah fair you
2: don't have to put yourself out there by any means i don't think anybody really has to but certainly not grab
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm just trying to poach your yeah you're gonna ruin my <laughs>
2: Yeah, but I
0: I think there is I mean there's something so this is someone who is they're they're podcasting about, you know, culture and politics and world events and that kind of thing. And I you know, the the way they describe it is that the the person that refused to hire them for this, you know, for this job at a clinic was worried about how it would reflect on the clinic and how it would affect clients and and you know it would be interesting to hear from clinical psychology folks because I I know that there is like I know that people are often careful to keep their personal lives for example out of their therapy sessions and that's that's an important thing and it is kind of an interesting dilemma in you know 10 or 20 years ago that was a much less difficult thing to do I mean it required that you not talk about yourself in session but you know there weren't historically places you can google your therapist or or look them up on social media or whatever and and now that's possible um at the same time i you know i mean i I would love to hear from clinical psych folks like the fact that you have a life outside of the therapy session where someone could go look up information about you um You know, there are self-protective reasons why a lot of clinicians might not want people looking them up, but it's like, Mm -hmm. is that really like going to mess with your clients to know that like you're a human being with opinions about things? And yeah, maybe some clients wouldn't want to talk to you, but some might want to talk to you more because of that, because they they feel like you've got these experiences. And there are Mm -hmm. other things that we view as perfectly valid, like things related to cultural competence and things related to you know, wanting a therapist of a particular gender or a particular cultural background or that kind of thing, because they mm-hmm. don't understand what's going on. And, you know, and it sounds to me like uh, reading a little bit between the lines, like this person who didn't want to hire this grad student was also just worried it would reflect poorly on the clinic. So it sounds like it's not maybe, mm-hmm. maybe some of it was like out of the interest of the clients, but some of it was also just like, not, you know, I don't know, being sort of maybe they didn't like the message in the poli- the politics of this podcast or maybe they didn't yeah you know, which to me is much I'm more curious. dodgy
2: yeah i'm curious like if they would have if the employer would have felt differently if this person instead of having a podcast had like public facebook posts where they express the same views because that's i think that's more common or or tweets which mm-hmm. are public, right? like um and then I think the doubles in the details, right? Like I think there yeah. are some, there's some content where if I had a business, there were some kinds of some people who there's some content where I wouldn't want to hire somebody who expressed that content, especially if it put me in legal jeopardy, but it doesn't want to the issue here. Yeah.
0: Yeah, But I mean, I think there's a, you know, the, I mean, you have to step back to some extent and look at like, I mean, this sort of relates to like the academia issue. Like, do you want to say as a broad principle, that clinicians should not be actively engaged in speaking out about issues in the world. Like do you want the the profession of clinical psychology of, pra- of people who give therapy not to be talking about politics and not to be talking about culture? And I think the answer is no. no. I think if yeah. if you if you say the answer is no then then you start getting into like picking and choosing the content and saying, "Well, I like right. what this one right. says, but not what mm-hmm. that one says." And in academia, we push back really hard against that. You know, the, the the University of Oregon says I have a right to, you know, to I mean, in academic realms, I have academic freedom about what I do in my classroom, that that has certain constraints. But also I have free speech rights that when I'm just talking on my own, um, that they can't interfere with and they can't pick and choose and say, well, San, we like what Sanjay says, so we're going to let him have free speech, but we don't mm-hmm. like what, you know, his colleague down yeah. the hall says or whatever. Is and there... I think if you're going to do that with clinical psychology, you have to take the same approach.
1: So, okay. I, I'm trying to like put myself in the perspective of the person who, um, is interviewing him, um, or her. And then I'm trying to imagine like, what somebody could say on a podcast that would make me, like, reluctant to hire them. And I think there probably are things, right? Like, I don't know, picture the person who you find most objectionable on social media. Like, would you hire them in this role? Like, and then, and then is that fair? Like, are we, are we allowed to judge people on, like, saying what we think is, like, an offensive Well, actually...
2: I think we're probably not allowed to And the way you could cover it up is by saying, well, you're just showing poor judgment by choosing to say those things publicly. So then you're not saying, I disagree with what you're saying, which is basically what happened here. Yeah.
1: Right.
0: Well, I think, and I think if it, if what they're talking about relates to the actual content of what they're doing, that's different. Right. So like Dr. Oz should not be hired. He should probably not be keeping his board certification or job and he certainly like I would say if someone if he wanted to change jobs and someone said hey look you've been advancing astrology as a way to understand people's health on your Twitter account and on your website um people that's a legitimate basis cuz that's like related to what he does but, right he's a health professional for a
2: therapist isn't like any political view that affects a group of people like being having views about LGBTQ+ plus people or having views about um, immigrants are having views about Republicans or things like that? I mean, since any of them could potentially be clients at the clinic. I, I mean, I, to I, do? I,
0: I think there's, I mean, that's a really good question. I think, I think there's, I think things that are specifically about mental health or related to mental health. So, you know, I would say if, if someone, and, you know, and especially if they're, so if someone says, for example, Um, If someone's uh, trying to get a job as a therapist and they say that I think that um, LGBTQ people, um, you know, that 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 is mentally harmful or I think that, you know, that's a sign of unresolved issues with your Oedipus complex or, you know, whatever (laughs) bullshit that like that's a totally legit basis not to hire them because that's just like scientifically wrong. Um, And and it's, you know, and that's that's content. Now, if someone you know, has a view on immigration policy as just immigration policy, and they might be treating uh, treating immigrants or treating people who have different political views from them. That's a little bit different. I, I'm not sure that that's, like, that's not directly relevant to the content of what they do. And, yeah, they have to establish a relationship with people, um, but they're going to have to be dealing with those issues even if they never spoke out about mm-hmm. it, right? anyway but i, I, don't I just know. don't know
2: yeah. enough about like what the norms and laws are in other or even in academia for that matter but yeah. i don't know what employers are allowed to do or, mm-hmm. so i haven't thought very much about what they should do employers but I guess in general
0: could... have way too much power over these issues yeah. i think that's yeah that's a lot you know outside so of like I academia think, and a few other places
2: so then i think my advice about how to present yourself on social media would be different if, if knowing that you know knowing that people are allowed to discriminate or not hire you based on views you express publicly. Yeah. I might be even, I might be more reluctant to encourage people who haven't yet found us to a secure job.
0: There might also be jobs where what this person is doing would be viewed as a plus, right. Where, where people would value that.
2: Yeah. And and actually, I mean, also there's also main effects of people, right. So some people will be liked more when they express their views and, themselves more and some people will be like less so it depends what kind of personality you have how popular your views are in general etc and then there's interaction effects between some people and some jobs or employers so even if you're harming your chances overall you might be helping them with and you only need one job so you might be helping them helping your chances to get the job that you would really like so it's complicated
1: Yeah, yeah well
0: i would i would love to hear from people who do clinical psychology or related fields about what they think about this because they they may have some views on this that we don't have since we're not clinicians um Mm -hmm. maybe that's a good place to wrap up on um so yeah so so you know we're always interested in letters and and emails and responses Mm -hmm. but you know um so about anything, but in particular, <laughs> if you have some experience or, or insight about this, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, our email address is letters at theblackcoatpodcast.com. Uh, you can tweet at us at Black Coat Pod. We've got a Facebook page, facebook.com slash Black Coat Pod, uh, a website, uh, whatever, uh, everything else. Uh, we don't have a Snapchat or an Instagram, but uh, maybe... I don't know maybe we won't not say that. yet not yet <laughs> maybe we should make an instagram just to like uh round things out um oh we do have uh, um a musical collaboration with diantward the uh south african oh, yeah. uh, rap group uh so <laughs> we apparently we produced one of their new uh new new songs um uh anyway that was no we got tagged on facebook for uh, this thing which uh it was a interesting song anyway but yes so Let's we've got our and we're own.
2: gonna sue for copyright infringement yeah obviously. yeah yeah so
0: check us out on soundcloud um and uh <laughs> on spotify um yeah
2: we are actually on SoundCloud.
0: Right? oh we are no i, I we're on uh no, we podbean yeah i don't think we're on soundcloud oh. that's everything hurts they're on soundcloud um oh. yeah and they had to confuse a, us with them sometimes I know I know it's it's confusing
2: I wish we were them no
0: offense <laughs> <laughs> especially when they got to talk to Dorothy Bishop I was yeah, like holy was shit cool. she's... I've
2: never met her I would love to meet her
0: I want to meet her someday she's such a badass I love her now we're gonna find
2: out if she really listens to our show I
0: know I know Dorothy <laughs> this, this is like you know how everyone jokes that like they're gonna put like in the middle of their dissertation a sentence like to their advisor like hey Samin are you still reading this this is like yeah. our we're doing that to Dorothy right now yeah. uh, no, she doesn't she has better things to do than listen to us, but anyway, um cool. well, should we talk about uh um societies our main topic yeah, let's do yeah. that yeah, so um yeah, I mean I think to just to sort of set this up for people listening, you know we've been involved to varying degrees uh among the three of us in different societies and and it's- it's an interesting topic because I think as we'll as we'll get into, they have um They have some influences that people know about and some things that they don't. Um, But we kind of wanted to talk about just in general what scientific societies do and kind of some of our experiences and and some things that people listening um, might want to, you know, might want to know or might be interested in about, like, getting involved or or what they do. Um, And maybe to start with, should we just sort of run through, like, what, uh, what kinds of involvement have we had with just to sort of familiarize people with our, our kind of experience and background. So Alexa, like what, uh, what kind of stuff have you done with scientific societies?
1: I mean, I guess my experience with scientific societies is like, so I go to conferences that are hosted by scientific societies. I try to publish in journals, um, that are run by scientific societies. Um, uh, I guess like to some extent I mean so training by scientific societies um I don't know if I I do scientific societies put on like um like summer camp and and mm-hmm. workshops and stuff like that. Yep. Um, yeah, you guys and then, you guys
0: met at a workshop that was run by a scientific society.
1: Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Scientific societies, I owe so much to them.
0: Oh, and you helped <laughs> you you helped You're found one too.
2: i on the program committee.
1: Yeah, that's true. Actually, when so when we we talked about this as like a a topic, I was like, I don't know anything about scientific societies. I'm like, you guys are just gonna. But I guess I am on a program committee. For well, me. you
0: were on the founding board of SIPS, right? You were on yeah the, yeah the the create SIPS board. So you... mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you've totally been involved. Sameen, it's like what a,
1: yeah.
0: What about yeah? So something? I had
2: the same reaction as Alexa. I was like, how are we going to talk about this? I don't know anything. Like, we're not the authorities <laughs> on scientific societies. And I was like, oh. You pretty much are the authority. No, of I'm definitely not. So I still want to say, like, I, there's still a big mystery to me. But so I co-founded SIPs um, and served on the board. And as president, I was on the board of the Association for Research and Personality. I was program co-chair for SPSP one year. And that involved going to the board meeting once or twice. And then I'm on the board of APS right now. I think that's it yeah
0: yeah so I my first formal involvement was I was secretary treasurer for the association for research and personality ARP back when it was quite small um, before it had a conference Um, and then I was program chair and then a board member for SPSP the society for personality and social psychology and then now I'm on the board of SIPS the society for the improvement in psychological science and I've done a few other things been on some committees and things like that so yeah and I mean one of the things that I like I was as I mentioned I was on the ARP board when it was or as uh, the secretary treasurer when it was very small and it was like you know I, I remember Chris Fraley was my predecessor and I was like what do I do and he's like get a checking account, and then, I don't know, Bezzled. figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> well, that was SPSP. Um, but so it was like this really small, and it was like, this was before, you know, like everything was done by mail and a little bit of PayPal, and and like, it was literally like I had a an old-fashioned checkbook that I would keep the ledger in. And then, uh you know, when I, a few years later, when I was on the SPSP board, I was surprised, like when i would, when we get the agenda book for the board meetings but and uh, you'd see all in one place all the things that that just that society, which is like a medium-sized society, does. And then, you know, to mean you're on APS and so you probably see even more. But I, I I made a list of just to sort of like for people listening to get a sense of like the kinds of things. And not every society does these, but I I made a list of so let me just run through this really quick of like all the things I could think of that societies I've been part of or or not been part of also have done, right? So putting on conferences is probably one of the most visible that and publishing journals. And not every society does all these things, but those are two big ones. Um, Some really big ones, and sometimes maybe even some smaller ones, uh, create ethics codes, so APA um, has an ethics code. Um, And some do uh, other kinds of like professional regulations, so APA is involved with accreditation, that kind of thing. Um, uh, Grants, if societies have revenue, and a lot of them have quite substantial revenue if they own their own journals, so they give out grants. They do training. You guys were both part of the Summer Institute in Social and Personality Psychology, which SPSP runs, and they get a grant to run that from NSF. Societies give awards, um, and they do a lot of stuff that's involved in the sort of prestige, which we've mentioned earlier. They do public relations for their field, so they put out press releases about science, sometimes stuff published in their own journals, sometimes just stuff that their membership does. Um they, some societies issue policy statements or white papers, so they actually take scientific positions on issues. Some take policy uh, positions and lobby. Some actually have registered lobbyists who lobby on Capitol Hill. Some uh, and, and lobbying can encompass both lobbying for public policy issues, but also lobbying for things related to the society's work itself, like for funding um, for the work that they do. Um, and then, uh, yeah, they can own real estate. Uh, they do. It's <laughs> so a big part of APA's budget, actually. Oh, is that right? So, tell tell that us more about the real estate. I, I yeah, do not Well, about I that.
1: Apparently,
2: I don't, I've only heard this like second or third hand. So, I don't know for sure, but I encoded it as reliable information that <laughs> APA bought some office space in D.C. a long time ago, and um, like APA APS also owns some office space in D.C. But apparently, APA bought like super what turned out to be super valuable real estate. So, like a huge chunk of their assets are in real estate and I think they've since moved and they rent out what was originally their space so they're like literally our landlords I might have that wrong but I think that's true mm-hmm. anyway it's a weird thing for a scientific society to be involved in yeah uh uh-huh.
0: Well, and yeah, and I think that raises huh. a really interesting set of questions around, like, what, Word. like, there for some of these societies, there's a lot of money and resources and, you know, capital <laughs> in the case of APA and, but also, like, influence through running journals and, and giving out the awards that are sort of most recognized and that kind of thing. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that they do that impacts people. And yet, you know, the, like, how they work is often, so again, this was part of my experience joining the SPSB board was like, I just, one, I had no idea all the things that they did, but two, how that's actually, those decisions get made and how that stuff is governed and administered is often, people don't know. And a lot of times it's because people are super busy and they don't pay that much attention. And it's just like, oh, every year I go to the conference and the awards get given out and, you know, whatever. But like, all of that is run by people in the background.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like at first glance, the topic of societies. Uh, I think I was like, oh, maybe this will be kind of like a dry thing to talk about. But then, I mean, given like what we were talking about as our chit-chat topic today, I think, I mean, societies are so central in uh, maintaining and and establishing this status quo, you know? If and you so... think about
2: like what you put on your CV, so much of that goes through societies. Right, right.
1: Yeah. So um, to to one of you maybe who may know more about this, like, I guess... One of my questions is, what are society's incentives? And maybe that comes down to where do societies get their money?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I think there's a couple of big distinctions between societies, even just within the world I know of, of social and personality psych. So one is whether they own a journal or not, whether they get income from a journal or not. And that's not always obvious, because just because they have a journal affiliated with them doesn't mean they get money from it. So for example, CESP, is affiliated with the Journal of Experimental Social Psych, so Society for Experimental Social Psych, is affiliated with with the Journal for Experimental Social Psych, but they don't own it. And likewise, ARP, Association for Research and Personality, was associated with JRP, the Journal for Research and Personality, but didn't get any money from it, in fact just cut ties with it. So JRP is no longer ARP's official journal. Um, But, so those societies don't get money from journals, but um, SPSP and APS and EPA do, and that's a big, big part of their budgets. And related to that is the difference between societies who have an executive office like full-time staff that are paid versus societies that run entirely on academics doing the work and mostly not getting paid occasionally there's like a tiny little like 1 or 2000 dollar stipend for some of the people doing the work but it's basically all volunteer work and one of the things that we talked about when we established Sips was whether we wanted well whether we to have a journal affiliate with us and if so like whether that would be a source of income and if not, then what? Like, where would we get any money? And still, something I think we haven't quite figured out, except we do have a journal affiliated with us, Collaborate Psychology. It's not a source of income. It's open access and that APCs don't bring in money for SIPs. They just fund the publication of the paper, and then some of the money goes to the reviewers. Um, and in fact, there is an APC at Collaborative Psychology. But I want to emphasize too that if you can't pay it, then you can get a waiver. And everybody who's asked for a waiver has gotten one, so it, it can function like a an open access journal that's that's available open to everybody. Um, but yeah, I think that then, then like so SIPS just runs on the money it brings in from like conference registration fees, which I think barely... If 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 they even cover the cost of the conference, they barely do. I think they might not even cover that, and then donations. Um, is there any other source of income for SIPS? I mean, we sell swag. I think a little for a little bit more than it costs that's, us. That's
0: not a yeah. Yeah, not, it's not a
2: source of income. It's yeah. just like we round up. <laughs> yeah,
0: and so yeah, um, the the compare. I mean, contrast that with like SPSP, which has. The number of members I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's in the mid four digits, and the budget is in the seven digits, so it's in the millions of dollars, and that's because SPSP owns like owns owns Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. That's the biggest one, and, and a couple other journals, and a piece of one, um, and that then and, and so that has a huge, and so at, that's connected to the other issue Samin mentioned, which is having a uh, professional central office. So when I joined, I was actually on the uh, involved in SPSP's governance right through that transition um, from, I think I was progr- I did the program before they had a professional central office and then kind of joined the board around the time they instituted one. And they could afford to now have uh, an executive director and multiple professional staff who kind of run the organization because they make all that revenue. And that in turn, Allows them to administer all these different programs. So they have different grants programs, and they have um, they run the summer institute, and and they run their own conference in house. So they do all the conference planning themselves instead of contracting out to somebody else or relying on academics' volunteer work and time. So that, which that is a makes big, a big, big deal. Which right? is a like huge you were conference deal.
2: Conference program co chair. Before those things off, I did it after and I heard that it was
0: like night and day. It was. Like, oh, I, the amount of stuff we had to do ourselves. Um, and I didn't I mean, even have, have the worst of it as program because the, there was a different committee yeah, that ran the conference. Convention. But I think that, you know, so for people who aren't involved in societies like these, again, these are, are things that are really important to your professional work. Like the the conferences that you go to that you get a chance to talk to people and exchange ideas the journals that you publish in and, you know, society journals are often viewed quite prestigiously. they are, you know, people like them because they're associated with an organization that they have good feelings about and and they're often prestigious journals. Um, And so, yeah, this has a lot of impact. And what, I mean, another thing that so, like, who runs all this stuff, right? So we mentioned executive offices um, for some s- larger and and societies with more money, um will have, you know professional staff. But the governance, even for those, the the actual sort of like the governance, the decisions about strategy, and then for smaller societies, everything is run by sort of officers and volunteers. But those are people who are elected. and one of the interesting things that I've watched about SPSP is, you know, SPSP has gone through this period of growth in the last decade or so, um, is that it's it's been trying to keep up with its governance. But like all these decisions about how should we spend our money? Should we be spending it on diversity programs? Should we be divesting from journals from like for-profit published journals because they're evil and go to open access but then we'll lose all our money and like all these decisions should we you know sign the top guidelines for transparency and openness which was something that was debated when i was on the board um should we how should we set journal policy should our journals have an open data policy or not should our journals require sharing of materials and code and and you know all those issues ultimately go back to the governance and who is involved in governance is I think to a lot of people kind of a mystery every once a a year if you're a member of the society you get a ballot but like how do those people end up on the ballot Um, a lot of people I don't think know and that varies by society Um, but oftentimes it's and this is how it works at (laughs) SPSV is it's the current board decides who's on the ballot to be on the next board Um, so at SPSP, they solicit nominations, but those nominations are just treated as suggestions. Um, so the, the SPSP board says for each position, we're going to pick two people and we're going to put them against each other. And very often there's a deliberate decision about what they want that seat to be. So they'll say, we want the next president to be Mm -hmm. a personality psychologist because we're social and personality and it's been a while since we've had a personality psychologist so we're going to pick two personality psychologists to run against each other or we've got a gender imbalance and so we're going to pick two candidates um who are the same gender to restore that balance or we Want more voices from uh, people at teaching oriented institutions. So, we're going to run two teaching oriented people against each other. So, that's how SPSP does it. They construct A- those ballots um, so very deliberately. APS
2: doesn't even. I'm on the board of APS and I don't know who's going to be on the ballot until I get my ballot along with all other APS members. So, there's an election committee mm-hmm. and I think they maybe together with the president, I'm not really sure, somehow it gets decided. But I find it strange that the board doesn't even know, or at least I didn't know, I haven't known every election cycle, I find out when the ballot comes out. So I think that there's a lack of transparency both with the membership, but even within the governance sometimes, it's not always clear. And I've heard of that happening in other societies too, where like part of the board will make a decision or, you know, the president, but when it's supposed to be, like the bylaws say that it's a board wide vote. And like Bobby Spellman pointed out that APS doesn't follow all of its bylaws. and. I'm sure it's not the only society, um, so I think there's issues with, with following, transparency-related um, guidelines and bylaws and so on, both within the organization and with its member, like within the governance and with the membership.
1: Is it hard for things to change within societies? Like our society is really slow to change.
0: So uh, what I can say with SPSB is that. Um I think the the board, when I was on it, the board was very interested in trying to be responsive to people, and that okay. works well for some things, um, and so, uh, but a lot of times the decisions would come down to, we're sitting around in a room, and we're trying to be responsive, but we're being responsive to whoever has talked to us, which is usually our friends, and so, you know, we'd say, like, oh, you know, I, you know, someone would speak up and say, you know, Uh, One of my grad students pulled me aside and, and was like the conference is too expensive and so we need to work on making the conference less expensive. Um, and then that's how that gets introduced, and people are like, yeah, okay, we need to be listening to the graduate students, so let's, you know, let's try to make it less expensive, and then mm-hmm. the next year, it's, or, you know, three years later, because there's lag, it's somewhere less expensive, and then it's like, oh, people are complaining about like, this wasn't an interesting location, okay, we need to do that. So, and SBSB has tried to do more surveying of its members to try to do that, but that's often the dynamic in these boards, is you're, you know, people want to be responsive, but yeah. that one of the forces that works against it is just, it's who's in the room, and who talks to who's in the room, um, and then I think this this process of picking your successors yeah, um, right. is also builds in a very strong inherent conservatism, and SPSP yeah. has decided it, this is not in the bylaws. The bylaws say that anyone who's a member, and and member means you have to have a PhD, um, but anyone with a PhD can run for any office. But SPSP's board has decided. Not, not to ever run people who are pre-tenure for board seats and not to ever run people who are before some amount of seniority that's larger than that for, for president. Um, and so as a result on issues, and there are two, in my view, two really big issues where there are quite substantial generational differences. One of them is diversity and inclusion. The other is open science. Um, And there are certainly some more senior people who are who have more progressive views on those issues. But, you know, it it just sort of like it it builds in this kind of, um, you know, generational difference because of how they choose their leadership. And as a result, that trickles out into policy, even even if people are, are wanting to be sort of open-minded in a general sense when it comes down to it it's kind of like what they think and what the people who talk to them have said to them and and that's uh um that's constrained by who they are and who their friends are
2: yeah i've brought up stuff at board meetings that i heard on social media and sometimes the reaction has been well if that was on social media then i don't i have in principle i'm against discussing it at the board meeting because i don't want to be like giving, I don't know, I don't remember exactly what the argument was, but something about Twitter being not, like, I don't want to, like, respond to things that happen on Twitter. And my argument was, okay, if I said a friend told me at the hotel bar that they had this concern, and I was bringing Mm -hmm. to the board meeting, like, wouldn't you take that seriously? So let's just say that I heard it from a friend at the hotel bar. Like, that's Mm -hmm. that's what Twitter is for me. Like, that's where I'm extroverted. That's where people are going to interact with me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there is a generational issue. And I think in general, the, I mean, this is not specific to academic societies, but like society in general, the world is run by older people. And yeah, it's gonna have these biases and not and be out of touch with certain aspects of what's happening. And, and the replicability issues make it so much more salient because there's such a strong correlation with age and seniority and views on those issues. So I think that ends up getting really skewed in the representation. There's a huge gap between representation and leadership and then the, the, what I assume is a the diversity of views among the membership.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think
2: that one area where I do have some sympathy for societies being slow to change is what Sanjay mentioned about the lags, so like let's say we decide we need to have a conference in Europe for example, Yeah. Um, people are like well why is SIPS in the US for thirty year in a row? Well it's because you have to choose a location years in advance and SIPS was just like a, a handful of people two years ago mm-hmm. and if none of us were europeans or if the europeans weren't ready to host a conference then guess what it was going to be where wherever we are so sips has been where brian nozick lives and where katie corker lives yeah and there's a reason but we thought about doing it on the west coast and maybe right. it will be there someday
0: well now it's going to be where anita erland lives uh because yeah she right. stepped up and you know is, is but yeah like the you know right the 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 travel ban came out like, and it's like, Oh, we already signed contracts with, you know, with these mm-hmm. locations and, and, you know, and, but obviously like, I think at the same time, you know, I, I always viewed it as like, there, there may be constraints, but it's like, it's part of our job to be criticized yeah, and definitely. to listen to it. And but I think, yeah, the, I think my and, reason for bring to it up is as like, if as you,
2: can. I think people have, should use their voice and criticize societies and put pressure on them. I think, in that calculation, you can take into account like how nimble is the issue you're, you're raising. And doesn't mean you shouldn't raise issues that are more long-term. Um, but there's some things where there's just no justification for not acting right away. So like I felt that journals should identify the handling editor on manuscripts and some APS journals do that and other APS journals don't. And so it's one of the things I brought up is that I feel like APS should expect all of his journals to do that and we'll see if that happens but um but that's something that's like there isn't like any technical development that needs to happen there aren't like there's money that needs to be moved around or contracts need to be signed or things like that so the low-hanging fruit are the things that can be changed really quickly and easily and there's really no good argument against it and then but i'm not saying don't just fight for those things but like those are the ones that to me it's like there's really no argument why societies shouldn't
1: be doing them. So from the perspective of being like in leadership roles on societies, do you feel like you wish that people reached out to societies more for certain things than they actually do?
0: Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I feel like the, and, and sometimes, so, so there was an example of, um, uh, at SPSB, where this came out of, I think this might have come out of the the town hall, a couple years, the diversity town hall a couple of years ago, where some students had an idea to have a uh, um, like a, a mini conference for Black students, Black graduate students, and the society, because it has all of this money from from the journals, is able to sort of put resources behind good ideas. And so like some some people developed this idea and approached the society and the society funded it and and made it a reality. And I've seen that happen I saw that happen a bunch with SPSB where ideas would come along and sometimes there w- would be a reason not to do them, but sometimes they would get funded and and when I was on the board, we spent a lot of time in our meetings saying we've got this surplus, we've got all this money, what can we do with it? And uh, um, and so people in that case, people that had ideas, like those would often get floated. So I think that's, that's one way. And then the other is the thing I said, which is like people in the room, they're human beings and they're talking about what they've heard and, and their impression of what they think the membership at large wants is based on their projection of their own views their friends, but also just who's bent their ear recently. And so I think if board members were hearing from, even from strangers, if someone sent, if you've got something that you want a society you're involved in to do, and you send a very nice, politely worded email, making the case to the executive board or to, if they have a professional officer to that officer um, and they pass it along. And I had an experience with another society where, um, uh, someone disclosed to me that they had, um, uh, been, uh, witnessed sexual harassment at the conference. And I passed that along to the board and the board immediately acted on it. And Mm -hmm. so I've seen, I've seen stuff like that, uh, um, happen. And so I I do think that there, it's not always going to work. And there's other times when you might have to do more serious things for things you really care about, but at least some of the time it will work.
2: I think also society should make it easier for people to give feedback. So and we should do this at SIPs, like have a form mm-hmm. on our website or something like that where people could give us feedback because I'm on the board of APS and I didn't like when the Sternberg stuff was happening, I had a phone call with the chair of the publication committee where I told her some of the things I'd experienced as an author of perspectives and as a associate editor at perspectives. And she asked me why I had never told her before. And I was like I just didn't realize that I should, I didn't realize, like, I thought it would be being dramatic if I, like, sent an email to the chair of the publication committee to say, like, this thing that shouldn't have happened, happened, but, like, it didn't rise to the level of, like, something needs, someone needs to get fired or something, but it is the kind of thing that now that I think about it, like, if other people were having the same experiences, then it might rise to that level, and there's no way for the publication committee to know, and even as a board member of APS, I didn't think I had the standing to like, out of the blue email the chair of the publication committee and tell them about this, you know, medium-sized issue. So I think I can understand if people don't feel like they can just, you know, send a random email to a board member or talk to a board member. And yeah, I think it's maybe not the ideal system for feedback to happen um, because you also don't know if it makes it to the board meeting or not, like someone could just ignore your email and things like that. So I think if there was a, a system that enable that kind of communication and feedback more easily. I think that would be good. Yeah.
0: And this is, I think this is a perpetual problem that societies face and I don't know the solution to it, but that, you know, people, people are very busy and they have so many things going on that they're not day to day paying attention to everything that a society does. And then something comes along that they care about or that they're concerned about and but they're not up to speed and so one they don't know how to voice that Two, they may not know what the society if the society governance or whatever is already even aware of it or working on it um and you know and and it, it yeah it's it's i mean i i saw this happen a lot with when i was on the SPSB board where people would say why doesn't SPSB do x and it's like oh we do we have a whole committee for that <laughs> yeah, and it's right. a, like a major part of the budget and like oh okay or you know, or conversely, you know, someone would say something to me and I'd be like, that's a great idea. Who have you told? It's like, I don't know, nobody, how do I get that to people? And then SPSB would like have a town hall sometimes at the end of the conference. And some years it would be packed and other years the whole board would be sitting there and there'd be like three people showing up and, you know, and, and it's, it's, you can't blame people for like having other things to do and not, if they're not on society governance or leadership, like not knowing the intricacies of it. So it's, I think societies have to do a lot to like have the information out there where people can get up to speed when they start to care about something or notice something and being sort of available when the feedback happens and being as proactive as they can. Um, But it's, it's really, yeah, it's just an ongoing challenge, um, you know, And and I don't don't see a, I don't know what the perfect solution is to it.
2: Yeah. I think another like conundrum I see when I watch societies operate and I worry about this with SIPs is that I see that self-preservation and and to some extent self-promotion becomes kind of an underlying goal of almost everything a society does. And I understand why it wants to continue existing and that has to be its number one priority if it wants to do everything else it does um, but that kind of scares me to see that. And then, especially like in my dual role, also as journal editor, I know that like societies care a lot about the income from journals. A lot of that income depends on people wanting to publish there, which depends on things like the impact factor. And so there's this inherent conflict of interest, and in that the society wants the journal to look good on certain metrics that might be orthogonal to and potentially negatively correlated with what the journal's. Editors are supposed to value, and mm-hmm. I think that that's one thing societies do quite well is they keep the governing board away from uh, scientific parts of editorial work. But there's that tension is still there, and I don't know that. I mean, I think it's not on editors' minds for the most part, but at least the good editors. um But I think that it it just feels weird to me that there's this like financial side to it and this self-preservation side to it like my ideal for sips would be for it to be okay for sips to be okay with sips not existing for it to be totally fine if all of a sudden sips doesn't need to exist anymore and then it'll just dissolve and it shouldn't just assume that it should keep existing and that shouldn't be one of its goals on its own right maybe that's too idealistic Hmm.
0: yeah i think the um I mean there when I was when I was at SPSP, there was someone who uh in a position of leadership who compared the um the the society's dependence on journal revenue to a drug addiction. <laughs> this was this was this was like not somebody who was being a, a rabble-rousing outsider they were just sort of stating this as a fact like you know, it it's like we're going to go into withdrawal and collapse if we get rid of this. But, you know, and this person was putting it in moral terms, talking about open access and that kind of thing. Um, and it, it is a really hard thing for societies, you know, SPSP and any society that has revenue from journals is doing stuff with it. And, and many people will say those are good things. You know, um, SPSP funds training and outreach and, and diversity initiatives and other kinds of things like that. Um, but they're doing it with the traditional closed access for-profit model. I mean, their journals are operated by a for-profit publisher and, and they use this very similar business model. Um, and so, yeah, so, so I think that it's, it's real. But if you have a society and you want to do things with your society, then you end up getting involved in things that make it hard for the society to back out of or to, to stop doing mm-hmm. down the road. <laughs> we should probably wrap it up then. Uh, so,
1: all right, I this it's over. All
0: right. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll uh, talk to you next time.